murder, abuse, brutality, lust, all manner of immorality, deception, subterfuge, subterfuge, deceit, abuse of power. You can cancel your Netflix uh, prescription or subscription. Wow. Because it's all already here in Scripture. Let's be honest, this is a really dark story, isn't it? Prefiguring the execution of Christ himself. I mean, literally, we just read, this man's head is presented on a platter, and it's easy to read it from 2,000 years distance and, and sterilize it, but just imagine being at a party where a severed head was brought. Remember the beheadings of about 15 years ago during the war? And they were, they, they, sometimes they would try and put that on, on YouTube and all that. Very, very macabre, dark stuff. So as I've been poring over this text the last couple of weeks, I asked myself, what good news could there be from this that would equip us as a church to have a strong, faith-filled 2024? Now, I don't think that anything magical is going to happen tonight. It's not like, you know, the clock strikes midnight and poof, uh, the ether, the atmosphere changes, boom, and there's a shift. It's not the way it works. But I do think that a cardinal, a new cardinal year, uh, as Pastor Cleet was challenging us with in Sunday school, provides us an opportunity, does it not, to reflect on the past and reset for the future. And so from this dark story, I think there are three lessons that can equip us to have a bright new year and, in fact, a bright eternity. So three lessons from a dark story for a bright new year and eternity, okay? Repentance, boldness, confidence. Starting off with the first point, we learn from this that next year, this coming year, it would be very wise for us to be repentant in our walk, to be repentant. So, we're gonna learn this sort of in reverse from Herod. It would be easy to stand back and see Herod the Tetrarch, the Herod of our text, as some kind of psychopath uh, on par with his father who was Herod the Great, so-called great. And by the way, Herod the Great, he actually was, I think, a psychopath. He's the Christmas Herod. Do you remember who had a decree that every male child to and under in Bethlehem would be slaughtered, genocide? He opened the first Planned Parenthood clinic all those years ago. This guy had 10 different wives, the fourth of which was Herod Tetrarch's mother. And because he had so many wives and ex-wives and so many children, this psychopath of a man was so insanely suspicious about somebody trying to usurp his throne that it was not uncommon for him to have his own flesh and blood knocked off, executed, assassinated. But it seems like Herod the Tetrarch is maybe a little bit different than Pops. 
in that, we'll see this, he seems to have, have a bit of a conscience, one, and two, has at least a flirting interest in hearing some truth. And yet the tragic thing is, he will ignore all the dashboard lights and continue on with a lack of repentance. And I think he represents a lot of people. People who do have a conscience that is somewhat at work, not fully cauterized yet, who the Holy Spirit will ping, who nonetheless continue to run through red lights. So, in verses one and two, Herod hears about Jesus, and he falsely concludes that Jesus is none other than John the Baptist resurrected. And with that, the writer of this gospel, Matthew, basically drops an elephant in the room. Because up to this, up to this point, we don't know anything about the fact that John the Baptist has been killed. So the, read, the listener, the reader of this text would say, whoa, 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 what happened? What are you talking about? John the Baptist isn't around anymore? And that's what verses 3 and 12 are going to, verses 3 and 12 are a flashback and tell us went down, what went down for John the Baptist no longer to be around. But the point I want to make in a preliminary fashion is this. Apparently, Herod the Tetrarch is plagued by a guilty conscience, right? By what he had done to John the Baptist, so much so that when he hears about Jesus, he's like, oh no, that's John the Baptist come back to life. And he doesn't just say it to his wife. He actually says it as an aside to his servants, right? Like, I don't think they talk to their servants that much. And he says to his servant, oh no, that's John the Baptist. And what's even more, Herod the Tetrarch is a Sadducee. You know the thing about the Sadducees? They were Sadducee because they did not believe in, you've heard that a million times, I know. Uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection, right? But isn't it interesting how quickly our consciences and the conviction of the Holy Spirit can cut through the lies we embrace to comfort ourselves? There's no resurrection, and yet, oh no, maybe there is a resurrection. Don't people today comfort themselves quite a bit with lies to placate their conscience? Because every human being I actually think at some level fears death. It is the great unknown, right? What is more, the reason we fear death is because we all intrinsically know, you can read this in Hebrews 2.14, you can read this I think in Ecclesiastes 7, every human being knows that beyond death, there is a judgment day where we will ante up and answer for our life. And so we say stuff like this. Well, at least she's no longer suffering. Right, that's common. At least he's in a better place now. You've heard that, right? Or maybe the biggest one, rest in peace. Now it's kind of cool to say rest in power. Really, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? I remember talking to a friend, this is years ago, who had lost a, a friend, and I didn't do it like on the heels of the funeral, but that person 
parroted out some of those platitudes, and I said, well, you know, honestly, that's only true if they're in Christ. In Christ, right? That's the gospel. And I remember how angry they got merely by saying, I wasn't even judging that person, I said only if they were in Christ. You see, Herod is racked by a guilty conscience. And as we will see, this is not the first time he doesn't respond in repentance, but instead tapes over the engine light on the dashboard of his soul. So, verse three. Verse three takes us back in time now. Four, because Herod had seized John. Now, I wanna give you Mark 6.20, because Mark 6.20 kind of paints, gives a brush stroke of what I'm driving at, that Herod is this mixed man who at one point is rejecting truth and another point kind of interested in truth. It says in Mark 6.20 that Herod feared John knowing that he was a holy and righteous man and he actually kept him safe. It goes on to say that when Herod heard John, that is heard him preach, it did two things to him. It perplexed him like, "Mm, I'm not sure, I don't like this. But it also said, and yet he heard him gladly. It says of Herod the Tetrarch, there were times when he would hear John the Baptist gladly. Do you see see the picture here? He was a man who had a measure of respect for John and at least a flirting interest in hearing truth, in listening to John the Baptist. And, And maybe it could be for him that hearing just a little bit of truth made him feel better. Not unlike the person who really isn't following the Lord, but will go to church every once in a while or go to a Bible study to kind of check the box to salve their conscience and try and placate their guilt. Some, conje- some, some would conjecture that what preceded verse three was there another occasion of Herod saying then to John the Baptist, hey, come and give me a word. Come and do a Bible study for me. Come and preach to me a little bit. And maybe you'd done that in the past. Only this time, John the Baptist just went a little bit too far. He went from preaching to meddling. What you are doing is not lawful. Taking his brother's wife. We're gonna come back to that under the second point. But instead of repenting, when John the Baptist says, that wasn't right for you to take your brother's wife, what does he wanna do to John the Baptist? He wants to what? Look at the text. He wants to kill him. Only he doesn't kill him because he fears what the people will say. Now, moving to the next section in this dark episode, we're gonna see that this man who seems really kingly but is actually very petty, fears more than people, he fears his own wife. Verse six, it's Herod's birthday. You know what birthdays were like for some of these men back in that time? Frankly, not that very different to what birthdays are like for some men in this time. They would have basically a crude equivalent to a bachelor party. The booze would be flowing copiously. 
There would be lewd dancing. And I'll just let you fill in the rest. Herod, because of his persistent lack of repentance, is on such a downward trajectory and do darker and darker sin. And when you don't repent, it gets darker and darker. Now, as having his daughter, to be technical, his stepdaughter by Herodias, her name is Salome, come and do a dance at this bachelor party-like party. Suffice it to say, she did not do a tasteful waltz. Okay? I'll let you fill in the blanks. But I will call your attention to what the text says. It says... And it pleased Herod. Now, this isn't stretching. Most commentators say, I mean, in fact, everyone that I consulted, and even some sermons I listened to on this, said, you could, you could say, pleased, aroused. That's pretty sick, isn't it? The stepdaughter. It's family. He's a lot older. She's younger. He's married. Darkness, darkness, and more darkness when you refuse to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, in his arrogance and desire to press, impress all his buds, all these guys who showed up in the equivalent of limousines to his exclusive, by invitation only high class but really low class party, he says to her, oh, you did such a great job. Ask me whatever you want. Another gospel says up to half the kingdom and I'll give it to you. And by the way, he didn't have much. He was the tetrarch, which means he had like a province under his authority and not even that, but I won't explain all the details. He wasn't exactly a king. Now Herod, at this point, takes the bait on the hook that has been set by his Jezebel-like wife, Herodias. This whole thing is a setup. You see, Salome, his daughter's just a pawn in this thing, just like so many people get pawns in sinful actions. And so Salome is told by her mom, this is what I want you to ask for, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And of course, Herodias, his, his, his new wife now, Herod, the Tetrarchs, she wasn't exactly fond of John the Baptist herself for calling out her sin. Now, I want you to notice the king's response. Remember, he had just wanted to kill John, right? But he didn't because he feared the people. But look at verse 9. And the king was what? So, did you see the mixed stuff going on in this guy? And he is sorry, by the way, in the most literal sense. But... How can you say he was sorry when he had just moments ago wanted to kill John the Baptist or months ago? How can you say that? How can you say that? What do you think the answer is? How, what would you, how would you answer that? A, a, a appearance of a contradiction. Aren't we just like that? So clearly he had, again, a ping of conscience there, right? Some conviction perhaps of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he thought to himself, this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve being beheaded and served as a dish at this party. But does he take the opportunity to respond to that conviction? Does he do that? Does he say, whoa, I've been blowing 
past way too many stop signs, boom, time to stop. No, he barrels on. Do you see that? He prefers to kill an innocent man than suffer shame before his high society, low class friends. He can keep his oath or John the Baptist can keep his head, but not both. And so, verse 10, he has the deed done. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. One commentator wrote this, of verse 11. And the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. This is what the commentator said. When the dish was brought in with the bleeding head, just try and picture this. A dish brought in with a bleeding head on it, no doubt Salome took it daintily in her hands lest a drop of it should stain her. And she tripped away to her mother as if bearing some choice dish of food from the king's table. This was not an uncommon thing in that, in that time, in that era, in that space. That if you want to take somebody out and you really want to make a statement about it, their head would be delivered on a platter at a party, a victory party. And sometimes then the person who had that done would spit on that decapitated head and drive a needle through it. And church father Jerome, we have no way to verify this, says that's what happened here. Now, trying to summarize point one, repent in your walk. Again and again and again and again, Herod the Tetrarch had a chance to repent, right? But did he? One domino fell after another domino after another in a darker and darker downward spiral trajectory into sin. Isn't that how sin works? Isn't that a lack of repentance works? And, and I love the way Alistair Begg puts things. He, he said something to the effect of, if you are not willing to repent, make sure you wash your hands and don't get around people with COVID-19 because the hand of eternity is coming for you at some point as it is for all of us. So as I was pouring over this text and asking, what does this offer for us as a church? I know this, I know this. I know that there were many New Year's Eves in which people were gonna make decisions in the forthcoming year because they would not repent that led them and those around them into heartbreak, despair, and destruction. I'm not gonna rehearse them, but if you've been around, you know that, or if you've just lived life, you know that dynamic is true. And I wanna remind us all here that you can repent, no matter how bad it seems, no, how, no matter how dark it appears, you can repent because Jesus paid for all the sins of all who would ever trust in him. Who here read last night the book Sunday Matters? Anybody do that? Yeah, we read it. We read it. It's, and by the way, see me or Susan after service if you didn't get your copy. It's for members. And it's just 52 devotionals about the significance of the Lord's Day. And yesterday's, last night's message was this. One of the gifts of the, of the weekly gathering is we're reminded we received a gift 
that we could never earn, right? That was entirely free. And there was this long paragraph that would have slapped us all in the face where it says, these are the ways that we lose our gospel mind, right? We start doing life our own way and looking for love in all the wrong places. You don't have to look for love in all the wrong places. You can go to the place where he who is the ultimate demonstration of love bled and died and rose again for you. So don't calcify your heart. Run to the cross. Maybe you're somebody who actually, a a, a big sin, whatever it is, has kept you from coming to Christ. Maybe that's you. Like you know, you know enough about the gospel that you can't just high five Jesus and keep on going with your sinful trajectory. There is repentance, right? Or maybe you are somebody who has confessed Christ, but you are harboring some sin and you're not willing to turn from it. You need to confirm your calling and election. Because the Bible does talk about, I think Pastor Nick hit this a few months ago, the soils, there are people who make a profession, but the worries of life choke it out, showing there was no real life in the first place. I just want, I just want to remind you, I want, I want, I want to, at, at, at the risk of overstating this, God is so exceedingly, infinitely, incredibly merciful. He can wash away the deepest and darkest stain. He would do that for anybody here. So why would you want to keep on driving through these stoplights? Because if you keep going, sooner or later you're going to be T-boned by God's judgment. And you do not want that to happen. Be repentant in your walk, number one. Number two, be bold with the truth. Be bold with the truth. There are two tactics out there that work together to conspire to neuter the Christian voice in the world. Two tactics out there that just want to neuter us. Tactic one says this, quote, if, that if we were only more kind, if we were only more winsome, that if we were only more inviting, well then, the world would receive us. And so what we need to do is we need to grab the winsome knob and dial it all the way to 10, and man, what an impact we would have. That's a tactic out there. Now, Have you heard the name Isabella Chow? Anybody familiar with that name? She was a student at Cal Berkeley in 2018. She served on the student senate. Excuse me. She abstained from a vote in the student senate for the student population, a vote on transgender so-called rights, you know, the bathroom thing and all that. I want you to know, she actually didn't even vote no against it. She abstained from it, and she did so, as she said, on the basis of her Christian convictions. There was massive blowback for this young lady. I mean, massive. And for a brief window of time, she did have an opportunity to explain herself. 
She was, she was as winsome and generous and gracious and warm and inviting as you could possibly be. She, she made it very clear, I am not, I, I, I stand against um, LGBTQ discrimination, um, but I, I can't get down with this because Genesis 127, God says God made the male and female in his sight. And, and God, that's God's creative design. It's not love to go along with lies. She was incredibly gracious through all that. But you know what? The pile on continued with her. Not only was she silenced, there was no opportunity for her to share anymore. She was again and again, viciously with great venom, editorialized in the student newspaper. Well, Andrew Walker wrote an article about that. And I'm just gonna give you a few, a few sentences from this article, because it, it, it makes this point, I'm trying to say, land, that's this tactic the world uses. Quote, the story is a reminder that no amount of cultural sophistication or intelligence will absolve the Christian from being seen as a backward-thinking bigot. I say this because there's an evangelical temptation that believes that if we can just communicate orthodox beliefs in the right way, if we can appear as nuanced as possible, then those on the other side of the aisle will see us as goodwill, reasonable actors. We're tempted to think that finding the right aesthetic or tone will resolve the underlying tensions that exist when Christianity confronts the world with an ethic that the world does not want to hear. Now, he does say, yes, be gracious, be winsome, be civil, be polite. Of course, never be less than these things, but at the same time, realize that to be a Christian, more may be required of you like sharing what's on your conscience and being willing to pay the price for it. Your kindness, if it's truthful kindness, will still get you into trouble. That's the point of this lady. No amount of niceness, civility, or winsomeness will pacify those voices who will hate you and your Christian values no matter how sophisticated you appear or whatever attempt you make to distance yourself from the Christian conservative character that you do not like. That's a good quote, isn't it? And I would suspect that really, of course there's always outliers who just are jerks for Jesus, but I think this point sticks. Much of the tone policing, if you get underneath it, is really truth policing. Don't give me the truth. Now, tactic two is this, and it's so quiet in here. Is this, is this making sense? The second says that when it comes to interacting with lost people and society at large, just share the gospel. That's all, that's all you should do. Just share the gospel. This mentality goes, lost just going to do lost. So just stick to telling people about Jesus and don't confuse it with other stuff. And it sounds really pious, doesn't it? But it's not. Aren't you glad the abolitionists didn't leave, stick to say that, oh, we're just going to tell people about Jesus, we're not going to call out the injustice of slavery? Aren't you glad they didn't just stick to telling people about Jesus? Aren't you glad 
People in the civil rights movement of the 60s didn't just stick to telling people about Jesus? Aren't you glad that pro-life workers today don't just stick to telling people about Jesus, but reminding people of Imago Dei? Of course, yes, yes, and yes, John the Baptist relentlessly pointed to Jesus, right? That message was not absent. In fact, his first words are, when everyone's getting baptized, behold the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sins of the world. That's Christ-centered preaching. He would go on to say stuff like, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his kicks. But let's be clear on this. He also pointed to the law of God, did he not? He pointed to the law of God. When, when, he, when he was called before Herod, Herod he could have just said, you know, Herod, what, what you and, and, and your latest wife just really need is Jesus. You just need Jesus in your life. You just need Jesus in your heart. Instead, he says, you have not done what is lawful. And to give you a little bit more on that, Harry, Herod, Harry, <laughs> Harry meets Sally when Herod meets Herodias. Herod had been married to an Arabian princess named Phasela, something like that. But maybe he was on one of those family trips. He took a shining for his brother's wife, Herodias, who likewise got an eye for him. So they, they agreed to divorce their current spouses so they could marry each other. And that's exactly what happened. They plotted out their divorce and, and, and remarriage, which of course was a massive violation of God's law on intermarriage for one, okay? A massive violation of God's law on divorce. It was just gross immorality, um, premeditated adultery and all the rest. And the tense tells us that John kept on saying, what you did is not lawful. 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 He wouldn't shut up. He stood there flat-footed. And he told it like it is. He told it like it is. It do that doesn't sound winsome. And no doubt there was pressure for him, right, to soften his stance, to make amends. But he would not waver all the way to his head being served on a platter. Some people don't know when to shut up. Some people don't know when to stick up and speak up. Many have mastered the fine art of biting their tongue when they should be using to speak up. Sean O'Donnell, from his commentary, has a great quote to correct us when we think of a godly person. He says, quote, we often define the godly person as someone who never stirs up controversy or makes his or her opinions public, especially moral judgments. But the Bible does not, and he gives a whole bunch of examples. Then he says, let's bring this idea straight into our, into our world. So should we protest immoralities, abortion, same-sex marriage, Promiscuity, yes. So pick at a clinic, write a letter, sign a petition, and elect a candidate. But more than that, we should open our mouths to the immoralities around us, especially in the church. It's not easy to confront people we know, church members, 
family members, friends, neighbors, who are disobeying the commands of Christ, end quote. It's not, is it? It's not. And he tells the story of a friend he had known from years earlier who had, at that time had been a youth pastor. However, he turned his back on God, disavowed God, and started to dabble in a homosexual lifestyle. And he was going to Chicago and they met up. And this friend who had been the youth pastor, who now had turned from God and gotten into homosexuality, they, they, they met up and, and he told him everything that happened. And he, he asked his friend, um, well, you know, you were in ministry. How, how, did, how, did your, how did your Christian friends and how did the Christian leaders around you respond? And he said, oh, he assured him. Oh, 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 oh. they've been very understanding and very loving. And he remembers thinking to himself. It broke his heart. He said to himself, no, they've been neither understanding nor loving, for this is love. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he went on to share graciously and clearly that what he was doing, the Bible calls sin, and need to turn back to Christ. Now, why should we do this? Why should we be bold with the truth? Why? Why should we do that? Well, number one, because God's moral law is being flouted and therefore his glory is being trampled. His glory will not be trampled forever, right? But when his law is flouted, his glory is trampled. We often think that we should only say such things to Christians. You know, people who have bought into the worldview that there's a God and that his word is authoritative. But other people, we shouldn't really start there because they don't buy into that. Herod didn't buy into that, but John the Baptist went right there, did he not? He said, what you are doing is not lawful. So let me make this plain. Every employee of a company is subject to the owner, right? Would you agree? The owner's the owner. You're an employee. You work for the owner. You're subject to the owner. Every ball player on a team is subject to the coach, right? The coach is the coach, and they're the players. So I want to tell you this. Every human being is subject to his or her creator. Whether they want to concede things or not, that's where you go. That is wrong because God and because God says so. So the first reason is because God's law is flouted and we should care about his glory being trampled. Second of all, because it may lead that person to Jesus Christ or back to Christ for real. It may mean you being bold with the truth with somebody, everybody has people that you are great friends with that you have not stepped up and challenged with the truth. It may be the means that brings them into the family of God. Until you're willing to talk about sin, they're like, why should I no more receive the Savior than I should receive a leprechaun into my heart? Why? Why do I need him, right? Does that make sense? Why do I need him? If what we call love won't speak truth to people, it ain't love unless it's self-love, affirmation. 
The first words of both John the Baptist and Jesus are, quote, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Only true, only, only, listen to me, family, only true worshipers of God are gonna have the mojo for this. Because only true worshipers of God, those who really pursue God and know God and are actively worshiping are gonna have a growing fear of God that then frees them and liberates them from every lesser fear that keeps keeps us from speaking up, right? You know what I'm talking about, the fear of man, right? You see, Herod feared men because he did not fear God, right? John the Baptist stood flat-footed before men because he feared God. So number two, number two, be bold with the truth. And third and finally, be confident in the outcome. You can be confident in the outcome. Is it not so easy to lose perspective in our Christian lives? But you know, Christianity never promised an easy life. I mean, the health and wealth perversion gospel does, right? That's all that is. But like, true gospel, true Christianity never promised an easy life. In fact, Jesus upped the ante. Jesus Jesus did not say, hey, listen, man, if you come to me and you follow me, your life is gonna be a bed of roses. He actually said, no, you might have amplified difficulties, did he not? You might have intensified difficulties, did he not? He said in John 16, in this world you have much pressure, tribulation. What he did say, Jesus, is that if you come to him, you will have forgiveness of sins. He did say if you come to him, you will have entrance into the kingdom of God. The scripture does tell us that if you do that, you're adopted into God's family. The scripture does tell us that if you do that, you have a home in heaven. The scripture does tell us that if that happens, you have a purpose far greater than the purpose that the guy or gal living next to you is living for. So when you come to Christ, this is what happens. You you, you experience great joy. I mean, I remember feeling the weight of my sin lifted off my back. And I remember the joy people felt around me for my coming to Christ. There is a honeymoon period. But then what happens is life smacks you in the mouth, doesn't it? And it may be that you, 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 you really truly are trying to live for God the best you know how by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, despite that, something radically goes sideways in some aspect of your life. And we've all been there, and we get stuck in the first part of Psalm 73. Remember him? He's all pouting in the mouth, down in the mouth, like evil's winning and righteousness is losing. Living for God is a waste. It doesn't work and all that. Well, it often does seem like evil is winning. It often does seem like righteousness is losing. I mean, a first blush look at this passage, that's exactly what it looks like happening, is it not? I mean, it ends with him being, his head being on a platter. Think about John the Baptist. He fearlessly 
and faithfully preaches the gospel. What happens to him after that? He is clapped up into prison. And in prison, there's no deliverance. There's no rescue operation. There's no relief. There's no getting out of that. Nothing but a, I don't know, a small cell and rattling chains and meager rations. Day after day after day after day. So you go back to Matthew 13, or Matthew 11 rather, it gets so bad, I can just imagine John peering through a small little window, holding under the bars of a jail, talking to the jail, talking to some of his disciples, saying, hey, you gotta do me, you gotta do me a solid. You, you go to this Jesus and you ask him, you remember what he wanted his guys to ask Jesus? Tell, tell me if you're really the Christ. Huh? Are you really the one that is to come? And we can only use a little sanctified imagination here, but I think this may be what's going on. He's probably thinking as he's holding on to those cell bars, Jesus hasn't gotten me out of this yet. In this very predicament I find myself in simply for trying to be faithful to him. He hasn't answered my prayer. Are you really the one? You ever felt that way? We've all felt that way. Of course we have. And yet while he struggled, did he not in the end remain faithful? And I believe this is a gloriously bright brushstroke in a very dark story that does remind us that the kingdom of God is in fact triumphing even when it looks like it's losing. You see, he could have compromised. He could have capitulated. No doubt, much pressure. Maybe Herod came to him about the time he sent people after Jesus, and he said, you know, let's, let's, let's broker a deal so you look good, and, 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 and I look good, and you can get out of prison, and all this and that. You know, he, he could have compromised. But he remained faithful all the way to that silver platter, did he not? A reminder that in the very place it looks like evil was winning. It, in fact, was not. There's another brushstroke here in the last verse. Right after John the Baptist is beheaded, I would, if I was a counselor to the disciples, I'd probably say, you guys should head for the hills, right? But they risked their own necks, right, to secure the decapitated head and body of John the Baptist for a decent burial, and then they even go and tell Jesus about everything that's happened. Is that yet not another brushstroke reminded that, reminding us that even in the darkest moments, hey, the kingdom is still triumphing. But I close with the ultimate brushstroke. This should be no surprise if you're familiar with the very epicenter of our faith, that when it seems like we are losing Au contraire, we're actually winning. You see, when, when evil forces, both demonic and human, conspired to put Jesus Christ on a cross, and we got him now, they were only accomplishing the very thing that would result in their destruction, hallelujah, and in the salvation of God's people. And that was ratified by the empty tomb, which they must have said, oh, no. And since then have been 
conspiring to try to keep lost people from believing in the victorious work of Jesus and save people from taking confidence in the victorious work of Jesus. And so I just say to you, fight that lying propaganda with the truth of 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, don't lose heart. Yet things are rough. Though the outward man is perishing, he says, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then he goes on to say, for this momentary, and it doesn't seem momentary when you're in the vice grip of suffering. And then he goes on to say light, it doesn't feel light when your heart is being wrenched. But he says, in comparison, this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transitory, things that are unseen are eternal. Be repentant in your walk this year. Be repentant in your walk. Don't run the stoplights. Don't get T-boned. Be bold with the truth. And what you lose in friends, you will gain in intimacy with the Lord and others who want to go the same direction. And be confident in the outcome. Three lessons from a dark story for a bright new year and eternity. Nick, you come. This does not mean, if you get this, that, hey, listen, if you walk in repentance and that you're bold with the truth and you're confident in the outcome, it doesn't mean that life is just going to be hunky-dory this year, Right? Doesn't mean everything's gonna go super smoothly. But if you, if you walk in repentance, if you walk in repentance, if you're bold with the truth, if you're bold with the truth, if you're confident in the outcome, confident in the outcome, this will be a year in which you reflect Christ in a way that you never have before. And according to the verse that I just quoted, you will then be having laid up for you right now an eternal weight of glory. There is being prepared for you an eternal future far brighter than you dare imagine in your wildest dreams. Thanks be to God and amen.